Welcome to the Journal.ie's The Explainer, where every week we take a deep dive into a different news story. I'm Sinead O'Carroll, and this week, what do the layoffs at Meta and Twitter mean for the tech industry? It's been a quite unsettling time for the tech industry in Ireland in the past fortnight, and because of its importance to Ireland's whole economy, there's been a sense of uneasiness everywhere. We thought it was just Elon Musk changing the landscape with his whims at Twitter, firing half of its staff, meaning 3,700 people lost their jobs across the world. But Irish founded firm Stripe also announced significant redundancies, and then Meta, Facebook's parent group, confirmed it was letting go 13% of its huge workforce. What does all this mean for big tech? What does it tell us about big tech's last few years and does Ireland need to strap in for more bad news? To talk about the implications or not of these moves by these companies, I'm joined by the editor of SiliconRepublic.com, Elaine Burke. Thanks so much, Elaine, for joining us. Thanks for having me. Let's start with the most recent news, which was Facebook's parent company, Meta, announcing that it is laying off 13% of its workforce globally. How serious are those numbers? Can you bring us through exactly what was announced? Yeah, so Meta globally employs over 87,000 people. And if that number is a surprise to anyone, it is a fairly recent headcount. Um, about 28% were hired in the year to date at the end of September. And I think about a further 15% were the year prior to that. So it has had massive growth in the last two years that it's now scaling back on. A reduction of about 13% that you said, that, that amounts to about 11,000 employees globally. We don't know if those cuts are going to be applied evenly across Facebook's various offices worldwide, or sorry, Meta's various offices worldwide, still getting used to that rebrand. Um, so we we don't know if that's going to be equating to exactly 13% of the workforce here in Ireland, but the workforce here in Ireland directly employed by uh, Meta is about 3,000 people. So you're talking about 390, 400 odd people if it is 13%. Yeah, could be somewhere north or south of that, but it's in that region, I would say. And has that huge growth been seen in the Irish office? Like, has its workforce grown by between 15 and 30% in the last two years? What's interesting there is that the Cork office would have probably seen the most growth by comparison. So there's actually a Dublin HQ that people would be quite familiar with, but there's actually a major office in Cork. And that's actually where a huge amount of the Reality Labs division is based. Um, and that's actually because of a company they acquired down in Cork that worked in VR, a company called InfiniLed. And uh, since that acquisition a number of years ago, the Cork base has been growing and working in the space that Meta has rebranded its entire company around, which is the VR side and the metaverse. Yeah. So what has changed in the in since the two years? So they obviously started doing this huge amount of hiring and now they've said, actually, no, we need to scale back. Does that signal a problem or does it just signal a mistake that they weren't going to grow like they thought they were going to? So what's really interesting here is we've had I would say in the space of the past week, three very high profile job cut announcements here. There was Twitter and Stripe and Meta all kind of coming very close together. In the grander scope of things in terms of the tech sector, what I would say is the tech sector is experiencing a period of having to scale back on bets that were made uh, very recently in terms of looking ahead for projections and scale that were probably overzealous. Patrick Collison from Stripe himself has admitted that he overhired uh, for the situation they find themselves in now. Jack Dorsey, who was CEO of Twitter up until fairly recently, said that he also overhired. So that is some of the narrative that's coming out is that the leadership teams at these companies are realizing that the scale that they were accounting for actually wasn't sustainable and wasn't realistic and they're having to hedge back now. In, in the case of Twitter, it's, it's a slightly different scenario in that you could contextualize it in that broader tech space that's happening 
outside of these three companies, lots of companies are finding themselves in very, very similar scenarios right now, especially across tech. And this has been going on for months. But in the case of Twitter, you have a new CEO coming in who seems to be more about raising the company to the ground and building it back up in his image. Uh, so they are slightly different scenarios. And in Stripe's case, they're still planning ahead for um, a company that's based around fintech and payments and e-commerce and all that side of things. And you can see a very steady future for e-commerce and for fintech. So a company like Stripe, while they're hedging back, uh, they still have, I would say, a very steady roadmap ahead of them. Can you explain to people who Stripe are, what fintech is, just in case they don't know either of those terms? Yeah, so fintech is just a shortened uh compound word of financial technologies and stripe is kind of a board on the internet fintech company so as opposed to a financial services agent that has pivoted to digital services they've always been about uh, e-commerce and online payments and online payments is really where their beginnings were they do other services outside of that but the average listener will have known them as the engine that powers a lot of the payments they make online if they pay for a subscription or if they buy a product they might actually be paying through a stripe technology You've said there that one of the Collison brothers said that they had overhired. Can we drill down into that a little bit as to what they're actually saying? Was it a specific section they overhired in? Do we know the details or can we pinpoint the exact issue that happened along the way that they now have to scale back on? Yeah, so actually in the case of Stripe, there has actually been quite a, a good amount of communications and a, a bit more transparency around what's happening there than we've had with some other companies. And what Collison actually said in his letter to employees, uh, he kind of outlined that certain groups that might be affected the most would be in the recruitment side of the business. So it, it's kind of like if you plan on scaling your business, you probably need a larger HR and recruitment team to back that up. And if you're not going to be scaling your headcount, you need less of them. So he has admitted that that's where most of the impact is going to be. And then there will be other teams that might get winnowed down ever so slightly. But you can imagine the larger impacts will be on the team that will now be seen as somewhat not necessary if the headcount is stabilizing or contracting, which would be HR and recruitment. Were all these job losses and hiring freezes somewhat expected across the tech sector? Like I know myself, I'd been hearing about like the tech wreck for, you know, not probably a long time, but a couple of months. Absolutely. Like I said, uh, the past couple of months for any tech journalist watching the news, none of this is hugely surprising. Uh, it's really unfortunate and you hate to be reporting on people losing their jobs. It's, it's just it's not a nice situation at all. I have to stress that. But unfortunately, it is the direction that we've seen things going. These stories were coming out of the States for the last number of months. They weren't all companies that have bases here in Ireland. So they haven't all resonated over here as much as the announcements in the last week or so have. Um, but it has been a common, common thing that's happening. And it's not just isolated to US tech either. Earlier this year, Klarner, which is um, a European unicorn company. So that's a company that's valued over a billion dollars and scaling quickly. Again, in that fintech and e-commerce space, Klarna allows people to make kind of segmented payments on products. So instead of paying in one lump sum, as you normally would for a product, you can actually split payments. They were overvalued as well and they overhired as well. And uh, a few months ago, decreased their valuation in a funding round massively and also issued some layoffs. So it's not isolated to US tech. This is basically the markets responding to what has been an overvalued tech sector for some time now. When you say that, I get fierce memories of the dot-com bubble in the late 90s. Is that a fair comparison or is that too much of an exaggeration and too much of a leap? 
Yeah, I think uh, hard to confidently say this, but like I say, somewhat lessons have been learned from the past. Uh, I say with some high notes there, um, but I wouldn't expect the the dramatics of that dot com bubble burst. I believe in the US alone, hundreds of thousands of jobs were lost in the space of a year. We're not quite at those kind of levels yet. Um, and I say yet, hoping that it never actually transpires to becoming even close to that. But I think what's interesting is kind of what I was edging towards earlier. We have companies like Stripe um, who are in that fintech and payments segment. I, I would say that they're going to hold strong. I couldn't see Stripe's business collapsing. It's too strong of a business model. People are going to be conducting transactions online, I'd say for as, as long as I'm alive, alive anyway. But I think for other businesses, I think it could be a bigger deal. Like Meta in particular has bet a lot of its um, investment currently and a lot of its resources currently on the metaverse, which is not a proven business model, not a proven platform. They're kind of trying to write this uh, new universe and they really think that people are going to interact with virtual reality in a way that they don't do now. They're trying to create a new product category in a way that may not ever pan out. So the bets that these companies are making right now are actually probably more important for the what the future holds really and in twitter's case i don't know if twitter can recover from the changes being made there and the possible defection of users that's going to happen from that and then what does that mean for the, the people remaining at that company before we get into twitter fully just in terms of ireland's place in all of this should we be worried about what is going on especially if you look at what's happening in the hardware environment and, for example, Intel, which is a huge employer here and a huge part of our FDI strategy, also looking at scaling down and scaling back some operations. Yeah, I think the the Intel cuts, which have not been announced, but are much anticipated at this point, I think that could be a real shock because that industry in Ireland, it may not be as talked about as all of the US social media and digital services companies that locate here, but Intel has been in Ireland a long, long time. And having a base for semiconductor manufacturing here in Ireland is very important, especially in the context of the EU at the moment, which is currently engaging in a strategy to become more of a a, a top line semiconductor producer. The EU really wants to be a player in that game and Ireland should be striving to play a part in that. Now we did lose um, the battle for some of the significant investments that Intel made into that. It, more of it went to Germany than went to Ireland, but Ireland has still got a, a key role there. But if cuts are going to be made, if, substan if substantial cuts are made there, that really, really puts our position there in question. And I think the Intel cuts are probably the ones that make me feel the most unsettled. Yeah, because I think when we talk, like you said, we talk about these tech companies, you do kind of think of Facebook and Twitter, but that imp Intel campus is absolutely huge, thousands and thousands of people. But there was a big investment. So surely that might signal that they do still have confidence in Ireland. That would be the hope. Now, we don't know what's happening behind closed doors, what conversations are being had. All we know is that Intel said on its recent earnings call that it is considering global job cuts because of a slowdown in the PC market, because obviously the semiconductors that they make go into PCs. If PCs aren't seeing higher sales, they, there's less need for those particular semiconductors. But because of the more recent investment in Ireland, you would hope that the cuts here wouldn't be as significant as maybe in other locations. 
Now, can we turn to Twitter and Elon Musk? As I said in my introduction, the company is now kind of beholden to the whims of the billionaire. So let's just focus on him for a bit. I don't think there's many people who haven't heard of him, but can you give us a little bit of a biography of who Elon Musk is as far as we know him? Yeah, and actually, I think he's one of those people that is very, very famous, but maybe some people don't actually know the full background as to why. Um, so he actually, like, in terms of tech, he really made his name as a co-founder of PayPal. Um, he's part of what's known as the PayPal Mafia, and that includes uh, Peter Thiel, who's a huge tech investor, the three founders of YouTube, um, the LinkedIn co-founder, Reid Hoffman. They all benefited from PayPal being one of the great successes of the early tech businesses. And from that, he became uh, this serial entrepreneur. Uh, he has founded a number of companies and he has led and continues to lead a number of those. So now, as well as being the owner of Twitter, he is the CEO of Tesla. He is the founder and CEO of SpaceX. Now, SpaceX is largely run by Gwyn Shotwell, its COO, um, but Elon continues to hold the moniker of CEO. He also has a a company called The Boring Company, which drills holes essentially, so boring in that sense. Um, and he's co-founder of Neuralink, which is a company working on uh, brain-computer interfaces. He's a co-founder of OpenAI, which people won't have heard of, but they may have heard of DALI, the uh, AI text-to-image generator that's quite popular online at the moment, where people input some text and get an image out of it. That, that, that has come from OpenAI. Uh, so he has his finger in a lot of pots and he's spread uh, quite thinly probably across a lot of these. And now currently as the leader of Twitter, um, the stock at Tesla seems to be falling based on the chaos reigning over there. And he's also, as the world's richest person, I think it's important to make some context on that. It's easy to say that out loud, but what does that actually amount to? He has a net worth of 203 billion. Meta's whole valuation at the moment, having tanked throughout the year, is about 260 billion. So that's how how much net worth this guy has. He's not liquid, he doesn't have that much in cash or anything like that, but he is the world's richest person by a vast, vast difference. The second person on that list, um, Bernard Arnold, uh, the chair of LVMH, which is responsible for the brands like Louis Vuitton, he's worth 138 billion. That's a $65 billion gap. That's huge. He is rich upon rich upon rich. And he wanted to own Twitter, like even though he has he owns all those other companies, he had wanted to own Twitter. What happened with his initial bid for the platform? Yeah, the big question is, did he want to own Twitter or was he just saying things and throwing things at the wall, which he does on Twitter sometimes? Uh, he seemed to lock himself into a deal that he didn't want uh, and now is stuck, stuck with it. So has he stuck with it to save face? He stuck with it to avoid a trial is the short version. So. He proposed to buy Twitter by 40, for $44 billion, which overvalued the company. And it, it, I mean, the deal even reads like a joke because he wanted to buy it at 54.20 per share. The joke being 4.20 is a weed reference and he loves making jokes like that. Uh, then he didn't want to buy Twitter, started to say that he didn't want to buy it because he was lied to about the number of bots on the platform and just tried to make all manner of excuses as to why this deal shouldn't go ahead because he realized he was about to make a really bad call financially. Um, and then Twitter sued him over trying to back out of the deal. And that would mean that he would probably have to go to trial. And in the course of the discovery proceedings leading up to the potential trial date, uh, some text messages of his were released um, publicly and they just didn't look 
great. It just looked like the the wealthy people of the world make decisions the way you see it, it happening in succession. Like, um, and it ju- it just didn't look great. And there would have been a lot more reputational damage had that trial gone ahead. I think I don't think the man ever wanted to go to trial over this. So then he had to find financing for this $44 billion deal, because like I said, he doesn't actually have $203 billion in his bank account to hand or anything like that. So he financed the deal with the, with the help of some other backers. Uh, a, a portion of it came from his own personal wealth. And now he owns the company, got rid of 50% of the staff. <laughs> What are his plans for Twitter and what has been the immediate impact of his ownership? So what we can see so far is um, oof, uh, he he claims that the company is losing four million dollars a day. Uh, and, and that's that's his claim. Uh, all the comms is coming through his Twitter feed, which is not like the best way to be uh, following what's happening with a company. But this is the world we're living in. It's Elon's world. Um, so he claims it's losing $4 million a day. And his plan to recoup that appears to be getting the users to pay either for verification or perhaps for use of the service overall. There's all those manner of ideas seem to be thrown out there. Um, you might see some of those changes roll out in the next couple of days because the some of the team were saying that they weren't going to roll out changes such as that until after the uh, midterm elections in the US. And now that they've taken place, we're probably going to see some changes, maybe even as early as this week. But the calculations say that even if uh, he gets a substantial number of users to pay, it's probably still not going to make the money that he needs the company to make. And the worst thing is what the company actually does make money doing in advertising has been scared off by Elon Musk. So. he has pleaded with advertisers saying he's not creating a free for all hellscape, but um, the kind of insider reports are saying that um, he has been on calls with massive advertising agencies and literally during those calls, they have been cancelling their or pausing their advertising on Twitter. That's how badly it's going for him in terms of advertising. The chief commercial officer at Twitter was one of the executives that left um, in the tumult of his first week on the job and uh, she would have basically minded those kind of relationships. So these advertisers now feel like they don't have basically an effective liaison to manage their accounts or to assure them of what's happening with Twitter. It's all very volatile and advertisers don't want to be next to toxic content. So if they think that moderation is going to suffer, they don't want their advertising to be on the platform. Interestingly, also the kind of advertiser that pulled out first was the very first named advertiser to pull out, as far as I know, is General Motors, a car company which competes directly with Tesla, another of Elon Musk's companies. Um, and I think Volkswagen has also paused its advertising on the platform. So there could also be just competitive um, elements at play here. So the company could very much be in trouble. Absolutely. Um, and Elon could be in trouble. That, that, that financing that he secured for this deal, he has to make returns on that. He's made commitments. So he has to somehow make money out of a platform while seemingly single-handedly destroying it. So it just does not look good for Twitter. And you can see even in the user chatter, I think like overall people are talking about leaving Twitter. The majority of people won't. They will stay till the end of days just to see what happens. So you've got one one or two scenarios. We party till the end of the world and uh, see what happens, go down in a blaze of glory. But there's the other possibility that of the 50% of employees laid off very suddenly and very dramatically, there appear to be maybe some key members of staff. Uh, they've even tried to get some people to come back that they let go of. Um, there's every chance that 
even one person in those mass layoffs is the kind of person who is responsible for, say, manually deleting the data on a disk so that the site keeps running for days and days and days and that fills up and someone's not there to sort it out and then poof, Twitter collapses. Yeah, because the, the, the layoffs were done so quickly and that was actually something I wanted to ask you about the Irish layoffs. Um, do we know exactly how many people were let go in Ireland? We don't know that yet. And actually what's likely is we won't know until um, the 30 day process of consultation um, maybe nears an end or at least continues forward. So essentially because of Irish employment law, they will have had to inform people who are at risk of losing their jobs, but then nominate employee representatives to take part in a consultation period over 30 days. And by the end of that period, they will know who who is staying and who is going. So there would have been different laws in different jurisdictions here. And um, so I think people in the US are pretty much immediately gone, uh, where it's a different scenario over here. It's diff a different ballgame. So the, the picture of the amount of job losses probably on, on all these companies probably isn't going to be fully clear until maybe the end of this month. Yeah, because it did seem at the start that they could have fallen foul of that 30 day, but it seems to have rectified itself because they're implementing it a little bit retroactively, are they? I mean, that surprises me. I'm no employment law expert, but it really seems like they put the cart before the horse on this uh, in that it seems to be that employees were notified and then entered into a consultation period of 30 days. And that 30 day consultation period from what I've read in, in the law is that is meant to preserve as many jobs as possible. You're meant to consult on it to start and see, is there any way of saving some of these people from redundancy? Whereas this kind of seems to be, is this a foregone conclusion? If you got that email that you're at risk, is there any hope? It's really hard to know. There's not a huge amount of presence of unions across these companies, is there? Yeah, and I find uh, that could be a symptom of the fact that these companies are US led and they would take a very um, US approach to management and uh, the US is, does not have a favorable view. Cert certainly US corporates do not have a favorable view on unions. There's lots of union busting goes on in US tech. But it is changing. I think the sentiment of especially like the, the younger cohort of workers coming out of the US, they're starting to really cotton on to unionizing in a way that uh, I don't think previous generations really have. And I really hope that that starts to have an a trickle down impact. But when you're talking about a tech giant that starts off and grows strong in the US and then establishes a headquarters over here in Ireland, they will bring kind of a US workplace culture with them. And, um, and they offer employees high salaries, great perks, all sorts of good things. So they don't even think that they need something like a union. Just one other thing um, before I let you go, Elaine. Uh, you talk there about people staying on Twitter until the bitter end, but talking about leaving. So as part of that, they've been looking around and seeing, is there anywhere else that they can, you know, take their ideas and their thoughts and their, you know, jokes to? And one place that has popped up a lot in the conversation in Ireland is Mastodon. Can you tell us what it is and what people are seeing on it? Yeah, so um, Mastodon has emerged as a good competitor to Twitter or an alternative to Twitter, I suppose is the better phrase, because like Twitter, it's set out as essentially a microblogging platform. It's a long time since Twitter was, was referred to in that way, but that's essentially what it is. It's short form uh, text led posts. You can add other media, but it tends to be a text led platform. Um, so Mastodon has that going for it as a similarity to Twitter. But it also has some key differences. Uh, it's not one big company uh, or even one big solid platform that you can join and, and everyone's there. It actually is based on these different communities which are built on separate servers, which are called instances. So 
someone has already set up what's called mastodon.ie. Um, so if you if you if you're looking to join Mastodon, I think the most simple way to put this without getting overly technical, but in a way that will um not scare people off. If you look up Mastodon online, you'll probably land on mastodon.social or joinmastodon.org or something like that. That will ask you to choose a server to join. So it's basically like choosing your community. That doesn't limit you to accessing other communities on Mastodon, but it does confuse people that they feel like they're signing up and they suddenly need to know where to place themselves or what community to be part of. That can be a bit tricky to navigate. So what I would recommend is if you're curious about Mastodon is to go to mastodon.ie. And from there, you can actually have a look at this Irish Mastodon server, which a good chunk of Irish Twitter users have landed on. And uh, you can see what users are on there. You can see the kind of things that, is, that are being posted there. You can also look at the rules for their server. So each server, uh, each community can have their own rules, which is something that about Mastodon that might be appealing to users in that Twitter has over 200 million active users and tries to please every one of them. And everyone has different ideas of what's fair and fair game and what's not. Whereas Mastodon, it'd actually be a bit more similar to Reddit, the way Reddit has its own moderators for its different subreddits. Uh, different admins will have different rules. They'll also have different rules for access at the moment for the uh, Irish one, you do have to request an invite. And essentially that's just because um, it, this this is community led community run. There's not a corporation or a whole big tech team behind this. It's it's usually like a couple of individuals trying to support it. So, yeah, because it kind of sometimes feels like that we'd never be without Twitter or Facebook. But you know, we don't have MySpace anymore. We don't have Friendster anymore. We don't have Bebo anymore. So like, it is possible that these will all drop so much in popularity, or they might you know self combust. Um, that we just have to be in a world that they don't exist in. Yeah, and every time one of these ends, I think there's always that lamentation period where, and you, you, the the worry as well that you lose the friends that you made online. But I mean, as long as we've been online, I mean, the very foundations of the internet was based on community led led groups being formed there, and to see that happening again, I think it just goes back to that early days internet when it was just a little purer and a bit nicer there. And I just think it's that's a good time to go back to. Well, on that optimistic and pessimistic note, all in once, Elaine, thank you so much for joining us on The Explainer. And I'm sure we'll be talking to you again soon. This one is going to run and run. Thanks so much. Thank you for listening to The Explainer and a big thank you to Elaine for her expertise today. This episode of The Explainer was brought to you by producers Nikki Ryan and Aoife Barry. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving us a review and rating wherever you listen to your podcasts. It's a great way to make sure other people can discover it, listen and love it too. Thank you and catch you next time.